noon, the morning, or whatever time of day you're listening to this, grab your team having pistachio. I welcome you to Threadings, the newsletter and podcast where we explore black feminism, mad black radical creativity, world making, bits of insanity, and other things that keep and collect me in this quilt we call humanity. My name is Ismasu, and I really love the book that I'm about to share with you. It is called How to Go Mad Without Losing Your Mind by Dr. Lamar Jarrell Bruce, Madness and Black Radical Creativity. I included the first chapter on my syllabus for the Revolutionary Healer series, and I and we as a constituency loved it so much that Dr. Bruce gave us permission to read it together. So I am going to read to you chapter one, Mad is a Place. Get cozy, okay? It's a long read. A prelude. A slave ship tows the ship of fools. Confined on the ship, from which there is no escape. The madman is delivered to the river with its thousand arms, the sea with its thousand roads, to the great uncertainty external to everything. He is the passenger par excellence, that is, the prisoner of the passage. And the land he will come to is unknown, as is, once he disembarks the land from which he comes. He has his truth and his homeland only in that fruitless expanse between two countries that cannot belong to him. That's from Foucault, Madness and Civilization, A History of Insanity in the Age of Reason, written in 1961. Those African persons in Middle Passage, in quotes, were literally suspended in the oceanic removed from indigenous land and culture and not yet American either. These captive persons, without names their captors would recognize, were in movement across the Atlantic, but they were also nowhere at all. That's Horton Spiller's Mama's Baby, Papa's Maybe, an American Grammar Book, 1987. Prelude, the slave ship tows the ship of fools. Hold tight. The way to go mad without losing your mind is sometimes unruly. It might send you staggering across asylum hallways, heckled by disembodied voices, or shimmying over spotlight stages, greeted by loving applause. It might find you freewheeling through fever dreams, then marching towards freedom dreams, then scrambling from sleep with blood and stars in your eyes, the whole world a waking dream. But for now, we wade through a liquid void among ominous ships where this study begins. The epigraphs above, supplied by the French philosopher Michel Foucault and the black feminist theorist Hortense Spillers, are our floating signposts. They point us to the intersection of a fruitless expanse and nowhere at all. An unmappable coordinate where a ship of fools crosses a slave ship, where imprisoned madness meets captive blackness in stifling tightness through a groundless vastness. I shudder and flounder as I wonder, what vertigo does a body undergo, caught between treacherous waters below and treacherous captors above, with nowhere outside? How does it feel to be forcibly hauled across the sea while forcibly stagnated on the ship to endure a cruelty in motion that is also a cruelty of stillness? What noise might ring out if the sound of a laughing fool joined the sound of a weeping slave and would the weeper and the laughter commiserate? How does one keep time 
or discern direction or remember the way home from nowhere at all with no familiar beacon to behold ahead or behind. It seems to me that neither imagination nor historiography is apt to apprehend the seasickness of spirit, the existential dread, and the feverish homesickness that might menace a mad prisoner or black captive trapped at sea. An unimaginable scene might seem a strange place to launch the study of a radical imagination. Likewise, a fruitless expanse makes a bleak backdrop for pondering the fruit of mad black creativity. And furthermore, the unanswerable questions might sound odd, opening a work of careful inquiry. But there are lessons to learn from those who make a homeland in wasteland, freedom routes to chart that start in a ship's hull, debris of mad and black life to retrieve from the sea, mad black worlds to make that rise from a ship's wake, and questions that refuse answers but rouse movements. And besides, if the anti-colonial psychiatrist Franz Fanon is right, if there is a zone of non-being, utterly naked declivity, where an authentic upheaval can be born, then nowhere at all may be an especially auspicious place to commence. By beginning at this curious crossing, I also hope to orient the reader, which requires that I disorient the reader for the errant erratic roots to come. Remember that the way is sometimes unruly. Those opening epigraphs of passages are prose conjuring the cataclysmic passages of persons across temporal, spatial, and metaphysical gauntlets. In the first epigraph, Foucault chases a ship of fools as it crisscrosses early modern Europe to have him tell it. The ship of fools were 15th century nautical vessels whose lunatic occupants were deemed nuisances to their communities, expelled from home, made wards of sailors, and consigned to ships as they drifted along European rivers and seas. When Foucault declares that the mad seafarer has his truth and his homeland only in that fruitless expanse between two countries that cannot belong to him, the words evoke a mad diaspora, a scattering of captives across sovereign borders and over bodies of water, an upheaval and dispersal of persons flung far from home, and an emergence unprecedented diasporatic subjectivities, ontologies, and possibilities that transgress national and rational norms. To a scholar of Black modernity, Foucault's account may ring uncannily familiar. It brings to mind many millions of Africans abducted from their native lands by slave traders in the 15th through 19th centuries. These stolen people were stacked in the putrid pits of a slave ship, made prisoner of the passage, called the Middle Passage, uprooted from solid truth and stable homeland, drenched instead in oceanic uncertainty, dragged across a fruitless expanse, discharged onto a land that arguably cannot belong to them and cast into restlessness and rootlessness that persist in many of their descendants. In the second epigraph, Spillers describes the passage, and her words bear repeating. Removed from the indigenous land and culture, and not yet American either, these captive persons, without names their captors would recognize, were in movement across the Atlantic, but they were also nowhere at all. 
Some pessimists claims that the progeny of slaves are still not American, still vainly awaiting recognition as citizen and affirmation as human, still existentially captive, still suspended in that void. Wherever blackness dwells, the slave ship, spaceship, graveyard, garden, elsewhere, everywhere, those captives accessed what Spillers calls a richness of possibility. They would realize black diasporatic kinesis, kinship, sociality, creativity, love, and myriad modes of being that flourish in their marvelously tenacious airs. In a fruitless expanse, the enslaved bore fruit, the pits held seeds, as pits sometimes do. Both the ship of fools and the slave ship provoke historiographic dispute. Regarding the ship of fools, many historians insist that Foucault mistook an early modern literary and visual motif for a material vessel. As for the slave ship, it incites crises of calculations about the number of Africans who made it to the other side, by which I mean the Americas and or as the afterlife, and about the depth of the wound that the Middle Passage inflicts on modernity. Both ships defy positivist history. The ship of fools because it was likely unreal, and the slave ship because it was so devastatingly real that it confounds comprehension, resists documentation, and spawns ongoing effects that belie the purported pastness of history. It is no wonder that when Spillers wanted to address the historical and the ontological functions of the Middle Passage and its ripples across modernity, particularly Black female modernity, she realized that the language of the historian was not telling me what I needed to know. Perhaps the language of the mad methodologist, who I will introduce shortly, can better speak to Spillers' conditions. Spiller further characterizes the Middle Passage as a dehumanizing, ungendering, and defacing project, and I would add deranging to that grave litany. To derange is to throw off, to cast askew, to disturb the order or arrangement of an entity. The Middle Passage literally deranged and threw millions of Africans askew across continents, oceans, centuries, and worlds. I also used deranged to signal how the Atlantic slave trade and the anti-black modernity it inaugurated framed black people as always already wild, sub-rational, pathological, mentally unsound, mad. Although it is unlikely that a slave ship ever crossed a ship of fools in geographic space, these vessels converged into discursive domains and cultural imaginations of early Euro-modernity. According to the era's emergent anti-black and anti-mad worldviews, both of these ships were floating graveyards of the socially dead. Both ships were imagined to haul inferior, unreasonable beings who were metaphysically adrift amid the rising tide of reason. For the purposes of this study, I distinguish reason in the lowercase from reason in the uppercase. The former, little reason signifies a generic process of cognition within a given system of logic and the mental powers concerned with forming conclusions, judgments, or inferences. Meanwhile, big reason, capital R reason, is a proper noun denoting a positivist, secularist, enlightenment-rooted epistemy purported to uphold objective truth, quote-unquote, while mapping and mastering the world. 
In normative Western philosophy, since the Age of Enlightenment, capital R, reason, and rationality are believed essential for achieving modern personhood, joining civil society, and participating in liberal politics. However, capital R, reason has been entangled from those very Enlightenment roots with misogynistic, colonialist, ableist, anti-black, and other pernicious ideologies. The fact is that female people, indigenous people, colonized people, neurodivergent people, and black people have been violently excluded from the edifice of enlightenment reason with reasonable doctrines justifying those exclusions. Regarding the hegemony of reason, political theorist Akili Mimbe remarks that it is on the basis of a distinction between reason and unreason, passion, fantasy, that late modern criticism has been able to articulate a certain idea of the political, the community, the subject, or more fundamentally, of what the good life is all about, how to achieve it, and in the process, to become a fully moral agent, the exercise of a reason is tantamount to the exercise of freedom. While Membe names passion and fantasy as examples of unreason, a third entry belongs on this list. Madness itself. If those late modern critics claim that reason is a requisite for becoming a fully moral agent, they also imply the inverse, that unreason entails a moral deficiency and ineptitude. This is why those throes of passion, flights of fantasy, and bouts of madness are thought inimical to one's moral sense. Meanwhile, if late modern criticism insists that the exercise of reason is tantamount to the exercise of freedom, it also insinuates the inverse, that the condition of reason is commensurate with the condition of unfreedom. While Membe's point of reference is late modernity, Enlightenment-era philosophers like David Hume, Immanuel Kant, Thomas Jefferson, and George Wilhelm Frederick Hegel also asserted that unreasonable beings were suited for unfreedom and that the unreason of Africans ordained them for enslavement. Within white supremacist and anti-black master narratives that calcified in the 18th century, to be white cum rational was to inherit modernity's pantheon and merit freedom. To be black cum subrational was to be barred from modernity's favor and primed for slavery. The Euro-modern patriarch affirmed his reason and freedom in part by casting the black African as his ontological foil, his unreasonable and enslaved other, capital O. In staging this encounter between slave ship and ship of fools, I do not intend to imply a simplistic analogy between the two. Rather, I want to suggest that the slave ship icon of abject blackness, commandeers the ship of fools, icon of abject madness, tows the ship of fools, helps orient western notions of madness and reason, and helps propel this turbulent movement we call modernity. How to go mad, theory and methodology. How to go mad without losing your mind, roves the intersection of madness and radical creativity in black expressive culture, particularly African-American expressive culture since the 20th century. In the chapters that follow, I seek madness in the literatures of August Wilson, Amiri Baraka, Gail Jones, Nzaka Shange, Susan Lauren Parks, and Richard Wright. 
in the jazz repertoires of Buddy Bolden, Sun Ra, and Charles Mingus, in the comedic performances of Richard Pryor and Dave Chappelle, and in the protest music of Nina Simone, Lauryn Hill, Kanye West, Kendrick Lamar, and Frank Ocean, among many other cultural producers and forms. In the work of these artists, madness animates and sometimes agitates Black radical art-making, self-making, and world-making. Moreover, madness becomes content, form, symbol, idiom, aesthetic, existential posture, philosophy, strategy, and energy in an enduring Black radical tradition. The Black in this book's subtitle, signifies a dynamic matrix of cultures, epistemologies, subjectivities, corporealities, socialites, and ontologies rooted in sub-Saharan peoples and traveling in diasporatic circuits and surges to the ends of the world. Black coalesced as a racial category amid the Atlantic slave trade and the advent of global anti-blackness, but blackness contains creative and insurgent power on display in this study, far exceeding those wretched sites of origin and those cruel conditions of coalescence. I do not typically capitalize black because I don't regard it as a proper noun. Grammatically, the proper noun corresponds to a formal name of title assigned to an individual closed fixed entity. I use the lowercase b because I want to emphasize an improper blackness, a blackness that is a critique of the proper, a blackness that is collectivist rather than individualistic, a blackness that is never closed and always under contestation, a blackness that is ever unfurling rather than rigidly fixed, a blackness that is neither capitalized nor proprietized via the protocols of Western grammar, a blackness that centers those who are typically regarded as lesser and lowercase as it were, a blackness that amplifies those who are treated as minor figures in Western modernity. I appreciate that some use the big B to confer respect, signal gravitas, and indicate specificity. However, the impropriety of the lowercase blackness suits me and this mad black project just fine. Besides, my minor B is replete with respect, gravitas, and specificity in collectivity, too. Its smallness does not limit the infinite care it contains. And as for the term black radical creativity, it signifies black expressive culture that imagines, manifests, and practices otherwise ways of doing and being, all while confounding dominant logics, subverting normative aesthetics, and eroding oppressive structures of power and feeling. But what of madness? My critical account of madness in modernity proceeds from two premises. On the one hand, madness is a floating signifier and dynamic social construction that evades stable definition. And on the other hand, or maybe in the same hand, madness is a lived reality that demands sustained attention. Accounting for these exigencies, I forward a model of madness that is theoretically agile enough to chase floating signifiers while ethically rooted enough to hold deep compassion for mad persons. Thus primed, I propose that madness encompasses at least four overlapping entities in the modern West. First is phenomenal madness, an intense unruliness of the mind producing fundamental crises of perception, emotion, meaning, and selfhood as experienced in the consciousness of the mad subject. 
This unruliness is not necessarily painful, nor is it categorically pleasurable. It may induce distress, despair, acceleration, euphoria, and myriad other sensations. In elaborating this mode of madness, I favor a phenomenological attitude attuned to whatever presents itself to consciousness, including hallucinations and delusions that have no material basis. Most important, phenomenal madness centers the lived experience in the first-person interiority of the mad subject rather than, say, the diagnoses imposed by medical authority. Such diagnoses are the basis of medicalized madness, the second category in this schema. Medicalized madness encompasses a range of serious mental illnesses and psychopathologies codified by the psi sciences of psychiatry, psychology, and psychoanalysis. These serious conditions include schizophrenia, disassociative identity disorder, bipolar disorder, borderline personality disorder, and the antiquated diagnosis of medical insanity, among others. I label this category as medicalized madness, emphasizing the suffix eyes, meaning to become or to cause to become, to signal that mental illness is a politicized process epistemological operation and socio-historical construction rather than an ontological given. Consider this brief example. A psychiatrist patient who perceives voices with no empirically discernible outside source might be diagnosed with schizophrenia. Modern Western psychiatry medicalizes and pathologizes this experience as auditory hallucination. However, in another historical context or social milieu, such a sound might be regarded as, say, prophetic, hearing, superhuman orality, telepathic transmission, or merely an unremarkable sensory variation. My point is that there is nothing inherently, ontologically, transhistorically, pathological about hearing voices. Even forms of medicalized madness that are measurable in brain tissue physiology, neuroelectric currents, and other imperial criteria are infiltrated and sometimes constituted by sociocultural forces. The creation, standardization, collection, and interpretation of psychiatric metrics take place in a crucible of culture. Likewise, clinical procedures are designed and carried out by subjective persons embedded in webs of social relations. And furthermore, psychiatry is susceptible to ideology. Exploiting that susceptibility, various anti-black, pro-slavery, patriarchal, colonialist, homophobic, and transphobic regimes have wielded psychiatry as a tool of domination. Thus, Acts and attributes such as insurgent blackness, slave rebellion, willful womanhood, anti-colonial resistance, same-sex desire, and gender subversion have all been pathologized by Western psychiatric science. Beyond these overt examples of hegemonic psychiatry, I want to emphasize that no diagnosis is innocently objective. No ideology escapes the touch and taint of ideology. No science is pure. The third mode of madness is rage, an affective state of intense, aggressive displeasure, which is surely phenomenal, but warrants analytic distinction from the unruliness above. Black people in the United States and elsewhere have been subject to heinous violence and degradation, but rarely granted recourse. 
Consequently, as singer-songwriter Solange Knowles reminds us, black people got a right to be mad and got a lot to be mad about. Alas, when they articulate rage in American public spheres, black people are often criminalized as threats to public safety, lampooned as angry black caricatures, and pathologized as insane. That latter process, the conflation of black anger and black insanity, parallels the anglophone confluence of madness meaning anger and madness meaning insanity. In short, when black people get mad, as in angry, anti-black logics tend to presume they've gone mad, as in crazy. The fourth and most capacious category in this framework is called psychosocial madness, radical deviation from the normal within a given psychosocial milieu. Any person or practice that perplexes and vexes the psychonormative status quo is liable to be labeled crazy. The arbiters of psychosocial madness are not elite cohorts of psychiatric experts, but rather multitudes of avowedly reasonable people and publics who abide by psychonormative common sense. Thus, psychosocial madness reflects how avowedly sane majorities interpolate and often denigrate difference. What I've already stated about medicalized madness can also be adapted to psychosocial madness, acts and attributes such as insurgent blackness, slave rebellion, willful womanhood, anti-colonial resistance, same-sex desire, and gender subversion have all been ostracized as crazy by sane majorities who adhere to reasonable common sense, whereas phenomenal madness is an unruliness of the mind. Psychosocial madness is sometimes an unruliness of will that resists and unsettles reigning regimes of the normal. Oh. In its psychosocial iteration, madness often functions as disparaging descriptors for any mundane phenomenon perceived to be odd and undesirable. An unconventional hairstyle, unpopular political opinion, physical tick indecipherable utterance, eccentric outfit, dramatic flouting of etiquette, apathy towards money or wealth, or experience of spiritual ecstasy might be coded as crazy in psychonormative discourse. Yet, it seems to me that psychosocial madness reveals more about the avowedly sane society branding an object crazy than about the object so branded. When you point at someone or something and shout crazy, you have revealed more about yourself, about your sensibilities, your values, your attentions, your notions of normal, and the limits of your imagination in processing dramatic difference. Terms you use to describe the world, the reaching and pointing of your finger, the lilt of your accusatory voice, than you have revealed about that supposedly mad entity. These four categories are not all-encompassing and do not cover every possible permutation of madness. And furthermore, these four categories are not mutually exclusive. In fact, they often intersect and converge. Rage, for example, is always also phenomenal. Discourses of medicalized madness attempt to make sense of phenomenal symptoms and inevitably harbor psychosocial biases. Black people who articulate rage at unjust conditions are often coded as psychosocial others and sometimes diagnosed as medically unsound. 
The spillage of these categories into one another reminds us that madness is too messy to be placed in tidy boxes and too restless to hold still for rigid frameworks. Note also that these modes of madness might be taken up in manifold ways for mad praxis. For example, rage might be harnessed to fuel impassioned resistance. Medicalized madness might be deconstructed to expose and address the biases in psi sciences. Phenomenal madness might be documented to teach sane majorities about the lived experience of madness. Psychosocial alteriety might model ways of knowing and being beyond entrenched status quos. In these and other ways, the protagonists in this study get mad and go mad to convey and confront the violence, the chaos, the strangeness, ecstasy, wonder, aporia, paradox, and danger. In short, the phenomenal madness suffusing racial modernity. Beyond approaching madness as an object of analysis, How to Go Mad adapts madness as methodology. As I propose and practice it, mad methodology is a mad ensemble of epistemological modes, political praxis, interpretive techniques, affective dispositions, and existential orientations, ways of life. Mad methodology seeks follows and rides the unruly movements of madness. It reads and hears idioms of madness. Those purported rants, raves, rambles, outbursts, mumbles, stammers, slurs, gibberish sounds, and unseemly silences that defy the grammars of reason. It historizes and contextualizes madness as a social construction and social relation vis-a-vis reason. It ponders the sporadic violence of madness in tandem and in tension with the structural violence of reason. It cultivates critical ambivalence to reckon with the simultaneous harm and benefit that may accompany madness. It respects and sometimes harnesses a mad feeling like obsession and rage as stimulus for radical thought and action. Whereas rationalism roundly discredits mad persons. Mad methodology recognizes mad persons as critical theorists and decisive protagonists in struggles for liberation. And to be clear, I am not suggesting that mad persons are always already agents of liberation. I am simply and assuredly acknowledging that they can be, which is a heretical admission amid anti-mad worlds. I propose a mad methodology that neither vilifies the mad persons as evil incarnate, nor romanticizes the mad persons as resistance personified, nor patronizes the mad person as helpless ward awaiting aid. Rather, mad methodology engages the complexity and the variability of mad subjects. Regarding anger, the warrior poet Audre Lorde, asserts that it is loaded with information and energy. Mad methodology is rooted in the recognition that phenomenal madness, medicalized madness, psychosocial madness, and like angry madness are all loaded with information and energy. Mad methodology proceeds from a belief that such information can instruct black radical theory and such energy can animate black radical praxis. Most urgently, Mad methodology primes us to extend radical compassion to the mad persons, the queer personae, ghosts, freaks, weirdos, imaginary friends, disembodied voices, unvoiced bodies, unreasonable others who trespass like stowaways 
or fugitives in reasonable modernity. Radical compassion is a will to care for, a commitment to feel with, and a striving to learn from, an openness to be vulnerable before a precarious other, though they may be drastically dissimilar to yourself. Radical compassion is not an appeal to an idyllic oneness where difference is blithely effaced, nor is it a smug projection of oneself onto the position of another, thereby displacing that other, nor is it an invitation to walk a mile in someone else's shoes and amble like a tourist through their life world, leaving them existentially barefoot all the while. Rather, Radical compassion is an exhortation to ethically walk and sit and fight and build alongside another whose condition may be utterly unlike your own. Radical compassion works to impart care, exchange feeling, transmit understanding, embolden vulnerability, and fortify solidarity across circumstantial, sociocultural, phenomenological and ontological chasms in the interest of mutual liberation. It persists even and especially towards beings who are the objects of content and condemnation from dominant value systems. It extends even and especially to those who discomfit one's own sense of propriety. Indeed, this book sometimes loiters in scenes and dairies with people who may trouble readers. I hope this book also models the sort of radical compassion that persists through the trouble. I characterize mad methodology as a parapositivist approach insofar as it resists the hegemony of positivism. As a philosophical doctrine, positivism stipulates that meaningful assertions about the world must come from empirical observation and interpretation to generate veritable truths. However, when engaging the phenomenal, the spiritual, the aesthetic, the effective, and the mad, we must deviate from the logics of positivism. Mad methodology finds great inspiration in other cultural theorists' parapositivist approaches, including the Apostle Paul's account of faith, Edouard Glissant's poetics of relation, Avery Gordon's haunted and haunting sociology, Saida Hartman's critical fabulation, Jack Halberstam's scavenger methodology and Shekovitz's compilation of archive of feeling, Christina Sharp's wake work and Patricia J. Williams' ghost gathering. These thinkers study sublime, opaque, formless, subjunctive, scarce, dead, and ghostly phenomena that thwart positivist knowing. As a parapositivist approach, Mad methodology does not attempt to wholly, transparently reveal madness. How could it? Madness, after all, resists intelligibility and frustrates interpretation. Conceding that I cannot fully understand the meaning of every madness I encounter, I often precede my observations with qualifiers. Maybe. It might be. It seems. Between these covers, I embrace uncertainty and irresolution. I heed poet philosopher Glissant's insistence that the transparency of the Enlightenment is finally misleading. It is not necessary to understand someone. In the verb to understand, French comprendre, there is the verb to take, French prender. I'm pronouncing it in Spanish, but I think you get what I mean. In order to wish to live with them. I want to live with the mad persons gathered in this study, but I do not need or want to take 
them. I strive to pursue madness, but not to capture it. Recall that I began this chapter by warning you to hold tight. Mad methodology also sometimes entails letting go, relinquishing the imperative to know, to take, to capture, to master, to lay bare all the world with its countless terrors and wonders. Sometimes we must hold tight to steady ourselves amid the violent tumult of the world. And sometimes we must let go to unmoor ourselves from the stifling order imposed on this world. I am describing a deft dance between release and hold, hold and release. In short, mad methodology is how to go mad without losing your mind. And at length, this book will show you 